Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. What am I going to eat tonight? What am I going to snack on this afternoon? These are musings that run through my head quite a lot during the day. Of course, I'm lucky and I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from, unlike lots of people up and down the UK who are being pushed into poverty from the cost of living crisis. But if we do have the luxury of choosing what we eat, is it time to give it all a bit more thought? In the most recent National Diet and Nutrition Survey, which is a piece of research carried out by the government every two or three years, they found that while we're now eating less sugar, salt and red meat than we were a few years ago, we're eating more saturated fat than ever, which could have grave consequences for our health. So perhaps it's time to reconsider exactly what we're placing in the oven, popping in the microwave, or simply putting on our plate. The reason we're looking into this is that research I mentioned about saturated fat. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Blood folate levels have been falling in women's diets, which is concerning given the importance of folic acid in preventing conditions like spina bifida in pregnancy. The average intake of fibre which helps with digestion, is far below the recommended daily amount. Salt intake, while it is falling, is still too high. And you can probably guess that we're still not eating the recommended five portions of fruit and veg a day. So what does this all mean for our health? I'm Grace Farrell, and this week's Witch Investigates asks, will we ever get our diet right? Investigates is brought to you by the UK's Consumer Champion. We work to make life simpler, fairer and safer for everyone. After two successful seasons, we're back with new episodes every fortnight as we dive deeper into the issues that matter to you. If you've got something you'd like us to investigate, do get in touch. Find us at Witch UK on social media or you can email us at podcasts at witch.co.uk. Coming up, as food prices continue to rise, we assess the impact this could have on our diets. It's an absolute travesty in this country, and indeed in most countries in the world, that it is much, much harder to eat a healthy diet if you have a low income. We discuss when healthy might not actually be that healthy after all. 
the vegan food market has opened up massively and we're now seeing all sorts of products that are available to people to help them to go plant-based. You could go into a shop and somebody might pick up a vegan brownie thinking that's a healthier brownie, for example, than a regular one, but they're still, even sugar's still vegan. The coconut oil that they use in there makes it very highly calorific. You know, the, all these eating ingredients together make it just the same as anything else. And do superfoods really exist? Superfoods are just foods with great PR. I think there's no one food that is going to be way better than any other. It's not a magic bullet necessarily. I think certain foods are better for us than others, but I think the confusion arises when we put certain foods on pedestals. Come on then, what's for dinner? It seems like a throwaway question, but it's a pretty important thing to consider as we go through today's episode. If you've got a shopping list on your phone or maybe stuck to your fridge, just take a look at what you've got written down. If you're anything like me, you probably end up having a lot of the same meals week after week, especially if you've got fussy little eaters at home. But if you look at the stats, our diets are changing. Generally speaking, we're not hitting our five-a-day targets, so we're not eating enough fruit and vegetables, we're not eating enough fibre, and we're not eating as much oily fish as we should. This is Shafali Loth. She's a nutritionist as well as a principal food researcher and writer at Witch. At the beginning of today's episode, I pointed out a few positives. As a nation, we're eating less sugar, less salt and less red meat. But don't let that fool you. Our diets are far from perfect. My name is Xanthi Clay. I'm a food writer for The Telegraph. Xanthi has her own thoughts on the state of our diets and how healthy, in inverted commas, we can consider them to be. Probably not healthy enough is the answer, but it does vary quite a lot according to what socioeconomic group you're in. So poorer people tend not to be able to afford such a good diet. Cost is something we'll come back to later. It's what there's too much of and what there's not enough of and what we eat too much of and what we don't eat enough of. So in terms of things like saturated fat, we're meant to have only about 11% saturated fat in our diet. Most of us have significantly more than that. That said, there's an argument that a bit of saturated fat is actually okay and not a problem. It's a case of whether it's too much. As we'll discover today, healthy eating isn't straightforward. There's a lot of nuance involved, which makes it difficult to get right. And these stats paint a worrying picture. The consequences of this are that two thirds of adults in the UK are overweight or living with obesity. And 40% of children are leaving primary school also overweight or living with obesity. And it has an impact on our risk of many diseases later on in life, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and also several types of cancer. According to data released by NHS Digital last year, 2019 to 2020 saw a million hospital admissions where obesity was listed as a factor, and that number's expected to rise. That said, the number of cases where obesity was the primary cause of illness actually fell year on year. But bear in mind, this was before the pandemic lockdowns, which left many of us increasingly inactive and snacking out of boredom. In any case, how does what we're eating now compare to days gone by? 
You'd think with more information available and better knowledge of what's in our food, we'd be making better choices. Hmm, we'll get to that. Join me in the supermarket for a moment. It turns out the things we've been putting through the checkout have been changing, and changing quite a lot. The government's annual family and food data shows we're buying a lot less of some things and a lot more of others. It shows we're buying approximately 50% less tea, 56% less white bread, and 32% less red meat than we were just 20 years ago. Experts were especially pleased to see us buying 23% more fresh fruit. However, we've also started buying more unhealthy food. Consumption of chocolate bars increased by 13%. And then there's ready meals, with purchases up 100% since 1992. Oh, and then there's pizza. We're buying 143% more now than we were at the start of the 90s. Now, while you'll be hard-pushed to find anyone claiming pizza is a healthy snack, that definition of healthy could be part of the problem. I think there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet and social media, and there's so much stuff written about nutrition. I think, unfortunately, some of that is muddying the waters, some getting people a little bit confused as to what we consider to be healthy. This is Rob Hobson. He's a nutritionist who works with athletes, commercial clients, and regular people like you and me. Shafali from which also agrees things aren't exactly clear. There's no actual legal definition of what makes a healthy and unhealthy food as such. What you and I consider to be healthy, in fact, might not be the same. This point around misinformation on social media, the one mentioned by Rob just now, it's an interesting one. So often I'll be looking at my feed and an advert will pop up for some new superfood which will apparently change my life. The same goes for newspapers. You won't have to search hard to find a front page with a claim that a new food could make a huge difference to your diet. Superfoods are just foods with great PR. I think there's no one food that is going to be way better than any other. It's not a magic bullet necessarily. I think certain foods are better for us than others. But I think the confusion arises when we put certain foods on pedestals. Superfoods are definitely foods with great PR. And there's quite a lot of foods that I would say are just as superfoods, which don't have that PR. Things like black currants, black currants grown right here in this country, are huge powerhouses of nutrition. If you're interested, analysis found that black currants are full of antioxidants that promote health and prevent diseases. They help maintain eye health, prevent cataracts, they fight cancer, and even help reduce the risk of erectile dysfunction. It all sounds good, doesn't it? But if you take a look at the show notes for today's episode, you'll find those facts came from the aptly named Black Current Foundation. Now, it should be said that in this particular instance, Xanthi isn't being backed by a major company with a vested interest in promoting black currants. She's a genuine believer in their health benefits. But I want to raise a more general point around the authenticity of some of the data surrounding these superfoods. It's a point Xanthi makes herself. 
you have to be really, really careful about the information and advice that you get. I think the kind of information advice that comes through the NHS or something like the World Health Organization or the United Nations is pretty sound. But some newspaper report that says eating three avocado pears a day will make you have amazing skin and live to be 120. I'd want to know that that study had not been funded by the Avocado Growers Association. If you dig a bit deeper, you might see that actually the findings are from animal-based studies in labs. They're not performed on humans. And the results that you see in a lab on animals doesn't necessarily mean that those findings are going to translate when you put them in a real-world situation. The number of people involved in a study is also important. If it's been 10 people, whilst those findings might be relevant, before we can make any conclusions or definitive conclusions, we might need to see that on a larger scale. These heavily weighted studies can result in a health halo being given to a certain food. But what does this actually mean? So a health halo is basically a food that people perceive to be better for you or healthier, when in actual reality it isn't. So an example might be thinking that honey is better for you than table sugar because it's less processed, or rock salt is better for you than just white table salt. And the reality is they're not. Once we consume them, our bodies treat them in exactly the same way. Another product is coconut oil. For a few years, a lot of people were promoting it as a cooking oil under the premise that it was healthier than other fats. But actually, it's very high in saturated fat, which means we should really be limiting our intake of it. I asked Rob and Xanthi for some more examples of foods that come under the health halo banner foods that might seem healthy like the protein chocolate bar it might seem like a healthy option because it's protein it's sold as a protein bar but it's really not because of what it contains health drinks that may seem like they are good because they've got green tea or whatever else it is that's been put into them that contains the antioxidants but actually once you look at the label and they've added loads of sugar to them another example here is kefir really popular probiotic drink but actually if you look at the back of the packet it's often loaded with sugar there are a lot of breakfast cereals which are marketed as being fortified with iron and minerals, but actually are incredibly high in sugar. And breakfast cereals I have a particular issue with because they are very unsatisfying. They don't fill you up. So a lot of their figures about how much sugar they have and how much fat they have and therefore how, in inverted commas, healthy they are, are based on incredibly small portions. I have never known anybody eat as small a portion as you are recommended to do on the cereal packet. Last year, here at Witch, we looked at the supposedly healthy snacks that are actually packed with sugar, fat and salt. They include lots of popular children's snacks, as well as things like rice cakes and smoothies. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes. It's definitely worth reading and made me reconsider some of the stuff I buy. Coming up shortly, we'll go through some of the foods our experts recommend we should be adding to our diet, rather than just focusing on what we shouldn't. But there's still one particular type of food that gets a lot of bad press that I'd like to know more about, and that's processed food. 
Yes, dreaded, evil, processed food that's going to kill us all, right? Well, here's producer Rob with the NHS's definition of the term processed. A processed food is any food that has been altered in some way during preparation. Food processing can be as basic as freezing, canning, baking or drying. And what about ultra-processed? Ultra-processed food is characterised as ready-to-eat or ready-to-heat products manufactured mostly from multiple ingredients usually combined with additives or industrial formulations by which flavour, sugar, fats or chemical preservatives are added. So am I right? Does processed mean food is automatically bad for us? So it is quite confusing, actually, to get your head around because lots of healthy foods are processed by definition. So frozen peas could be classed as processed, actually, or canned tuna, which, of course, these foods are healthy. They're just processed in a certain way. My issue with the definition of processing or the definition of ultra process is actually it's been hijacked slightly to define healthiness or unhealthiness of food and that's not what it was originally set out to do. There are other foods that fall into this ultra process category that I don't feel deserve to be demonized for being ultra processed and that includes baked beans which traditionally are a healthy food. Okay, they might contain some sugar and salt, but actually they're a really good source of fiber, a good plant-based protein, and they're cheap and ultimately nutritious. And the other product that I have issue with being classed as ultra process is infant formula. I think it's really unhelpful for parents and can lead them to feeling quite ashamed for using a product that their baby requires. So I tend to steer clear of using ultra-processed foods as a definition of how healthy a food is. There's an article by Shafali in the show notes that lists more of these unfairly labelled foods. But it's fair to say that, generally speaking, ultra-processed foods aren't healthy despite their popularity. More next. Hi there, Rob here. Now, I'm the producer of Witch Investigates, but I wanted to tell you about one of our other podcasts here at Witch. It's called Witch Shorts, and every week we bring you the very best of our articles from across witch.co.uk and our various magazines. With expert narration, we make these available for you to listen to, wherever you might be, covering everything from travel to money, tech, gardening and more. Now we release new episodes every Wednesday, so just search Witch Shorts wherever you're listening to this podcast. This week on Witch Investigates, we're asking, will we ever get our diet right? It sounds dramatic, but considering the growing problem of obesity, despite having arguably better knowledge on what is and isn't healthy, it's a fair question. Before the break, we looked at processed and ultra-processed foods and discovered that some aren't actually as bad for us as we've been led to believe. But unfortunately, others are. These foods have become more and more prevalent over the last few decades and to the extent that they're now providing over 60% of the calories that our children eat. And it's very hard not to be convinced that this goes hand in hand with the rising rates of childhood obesity worldwide and in this country. Ultra-processed food is food that has been manufactured 
in a way that you wouldn't be able to do at home. It's using ingredients that you wouldn't find or processes that you couldn't replicate in your own kitchen. So a biscuit that you bake with butter and flour and eggs and sugar is not ultra processed. But a biscuit that you buy in the shops, which contains things like modified starch and monodiglycerides and fatty acids, is ultra processed. And it tends to be foods that have been modified to give them a longer shelf life and to make them very delicious. And it's what makes them delicious that's often the problem. You see, it's all about mouthfeel. Yep, mouthfeel. It's a real word. It's basically how something feels in your mouth. So fat really adds to the mouthfeel of something. If you think about chocolate or cheese or yogurt or cream, butter, you know, they feel really nice and fat makes food taste more palatable. So if you are removing that, you then need to try and replace it with either sugar or other products that will keep the mouthfeel palatable. As Xanthi said, Modified starch, monodiglycerides and fatty acids are all part of the problem and they're harder for us to digest than natural fats. You'll find lots of these additives lurking in ready meals and with sales of them at an all-time high and the cost of living crisis driving more people towards convenience food, the problem is likely to increase. It's not about just buying the food and cooking it because some people won't have a kitchen in their accommodation. They may be limited to a microwave or a hot plate. The other thing is about where people live. If you live somewhere and your only accessible shop is a convenience store, then you may not have that range of foods available to you. So it's a really, really complicated situation. And I feel like Actually, we do need to take all of that into consideration before we start judging people about their diets. The problem with the food budget is it's the only manoeuvrable part of the household budget. So it's the thing when money gets tight, it's the thing most people cut back on to try and save money. So I think it's important that people understand how to make balanced meals on a budget and just how to make the most of their money and try and avoid falling into the habit of just sort of creating unhealthy meals are going for those ultra-processed packaged meals, which, like I said, you can pick up quite cheaply in the supermarket. As Rob and Shafali make clear, cost, convenience and circumstance is a huge part of the reason people choose these foods in the first place. Lots of people don't have the money, the facilities or the time to cook a meal from scratch. So a healthy diet just isn't an option. It's an absolute travesty in this country and indeed in most countries in the world that it is much, much harder to eat a healthy diet if you have a low income. And with the average UK food bill up £454 a year, it's hard to see how healthy groceries will compete with cheaper ready meals. In the final part of today's episode, I want to focus on the foods we should be eating rather than those we should limit. Given the impact of rising prices, it's crucial that we know which cheap groceries will provide us with a balanced diet. I think that there are ways to eat healthily that don't always involve fresh food. Frozen vegetables, for example, and fruits, they're perfectly healthy. Sometimes they can contain higher amounts of certain nutrients because they've been instantly frozen within a couple of hours of picking. Whereas a fresh piece of fruit has been sat in transport and on the shelf for a while. 
losing some of its nutritional quality. You can make really healthy meals out of these foods for a fraction of the cost of using the fresh products. In a study by the University of California, they found green peas lose just over half their vitamin C in the first 24 to 48 hours after picking. So it's great to know that in some cases, specifically when it comes to fruit and vegetables, frozen can be better for us than fresh. So to finish then, what should we be eating more of and where can we find it? Very few people eat enough fibre. I think it's less sort of about 11% of people eat enough fibre in their diet. Fibre has more health benefits than probably any other type of nutrient. It can reduce the risk of heart disease, bowel cancer, high cholesterol, all sorts of things. And I think it's a nutrient that goes a bit unnoticed because people perceive it to be a bit boring. And many of the foods within that are foods that people don't commonly eat. So canned beans, pulses, lentils, more whole grain foods. Foods containing fibre should get a bit more press, to be honest. I think if you can increase your fibre intake, you're doing your health a lot of favours. Well, let's hear it for fibre, the store cupboard's unsung hero. Shafali is definitely a fan. If I had to give you one take-home message, it would be to eat more fibre. So you would be able to do that by increasing the amount of plant foods that you eat. For one, it slows down our digestion, which prevents rapid rises in blood glucose levels, and it also keeps us feeling fuller for longer. It binds with fatty acids and flushes them out of our systems, which helps to lower our bad cholesterol. And then without getting too graphic, it helps us stay regular, it prevents constipation, and it also feeds the good bacteria in our gut. So a diet high in fibre is linked to lots of positive outcomes. Now, I want to talk for a minute about supplements. My husband really buys into them and is always coming back with new concoctions from our local health food store. But are they actually beneficial or is it just more PR spin? There are certain nutrients that can be hard to get and some that you can't get from a solely vegan diet. For example, vitamin B12. So you would need to supplement that. But other nutrients that can be of concern in a vegan diet are iron, iodine and calcium. I guess the one exception to all of that is vitamin D, which is often called the sunshine vitamin. And the reason being is... In the UK, we just can't get enough of it from the sun between October and April, which means we do need to supplement that. Now, there are also certain groups that are more at risk of vitamin D deficiency. So that would be people with darker skin, people that stay inside for a lot of time. So anybody in a care home, for example, or people who cover their skin fully when they go out then they should definitely be supplementing all year round. But for most people, supplementing during those winter months should be enough. Some worthwhile advice there, especially as we head towards winter. And Xanthi Clay had her own thoughts on how we can boost our vitamin intake. I think we should eat more cabbage. Cabbage is amazing and it's so underrated because we had terrible cabbage at school maybe that was horribly overcooked and disgusting. We think it's a bad thing, but actually it's one of the vegetable products that we grow really well over here and it's super healthy. I like cabbage a lot too so this resonates with me. 
According to the Nutrition Data website, it's very low in saturated fat and cholesterol, as well as being rich in thiamine, calcium, iron, magnesium, phosphorus, and potassium. And it's also a good source of fiber, vitamin C, vitamin K, vitamin B6, folate, and manganese. <sighs> Phew. So to recap, if you're writing a checklist for ways you can improve your diet, we've got more fiber, vitamin D supplements in winter, and cabbage. Before we finish, I also wanted Shafali to bust a couple of food myths that I've recently seen doing the rounds on social media. I guess two of the most prevalent over the last few years is the myth that you shouldn't eat fruit as it contains too much sugar. Now, the sugar in fruit is within the cell structure and our digestive systems have to break this down to release the sugars. So this means that the sugar is released slowly. So it's not the same as drinking a glass of fruit juice or eating sweets. Another myth is avoiding cow's milk. And some people say, oh, I don't drink cow's milk because it's pumped full of hormones. But actually, the use of hormones is illegal in the UK. So our milk doesn't contain hormones. Dairy is often also blamed for causing acne or causing bloating. And whilst that might be the case for a small number of people who have a dairy allergy or a lactose intolerance, for most of us, there's no need for us to exclude dairy foods from our diets. If you're cutting out all of that, there's a real risk that you could be deficient in calcium. Again, it comes down to misinformation. These claims are often allowed to spread around the internet unchecked on various platforms. Last year, the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health published an article from a trio of Italian researchers titled Online Fake News About Food. In it, they stated, quote, Collecting information on vitamins, diet, nutrition and supplement information is the main motivation that leads people to use the internet and social media. However, the internet is not always a reliable source for information on diets and food choices. In fact, individuals are exposed to a variety of dietary and food misinformation and lifestyle advice that may be contradictory and deviant with respect to health standards, encouraging unhealthy behaviour. So what do you think? Will you be making changes to your diet? I'm looking forward to saying yes next time my kids ask for baked beans. And I'm going to look for some interesting high-fibre recipes to add to my cooking repertoire. During our interviews with today's guests, there was one issue that came up a lot that we didn't get time to explore today, but we will in the next episode. The issue of food waste. We throw away much, much too much food. And in fact, I blame food writers like me for part of this problem. We'll be back with more on that next time and the potential consequences for ourselves, big business and the planet. Thanks for listening to this episode of Witch Investigates. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next podcast. But if you enjoyed today, please spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. You can also email us your feedback by emailing podcasts at witch.co.uk. And a huge thank you to those of you who have done so already. 
Don't forget to take a listen to our other podcasts as well. Just search for Which Money and Which Shorts wherever you're listening. And we also have a host of free email newsletters, which are packed with expert advice and money-saving tips. You can sign up at witch.co.uk forward slash newsletters. Today's episode was presented by me, Grace Farrell, written and produced by Rob Lilly. Editing and original music is by Eric Breer. And our executive producer is Angus Farker. Special thanks this week go to Shafali Loth and everyone else here at Witch. And I'll be back soon for our next investigation. <laughs>